And this is really, it's truly one of the most important days in the history of Israel because this is an account of after, after all the suffering and after all the waiting that the promise of entering the, the promised land happens. They cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And it's, I mean, it's really not too much to say. It's just about as big a deal. It's evocative of uh, crossing the Red Sea. In fact, the vocabulary in the passage that I'm about to read is sort of nudging us to make that parallel, to make that comparison to the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, what I want you to notice, though, is this. Okay, here's the, this is, no pun intended, because there's going to be water in this passage. This is a high watermark of Israel's faithfulness. Almost immediately, things start to go downhill. So this is, this is one of those rare days where Israel is where they're supposed to be, doing what they're supposed to be doing. This is a celebratory day. But if you look at the way that it's recorded, the main character is not really Joshua. It's the book of Joshua. Joshua is the man that God taps to succeed Moses, lead the people in. He's really not the main character of this text. And really, the people aren't either. Who's the main character? Uh, You know, sometimes in a story, an object can be a character. Not just a prop. I mean, the classic example would be Lord of the Rings. The ring of power is not just a prop. The ring is really, in some ways, the main character. Now, that's fiction. This is a true story. This is a true account. This is historic narrative. But really, the main character in this passage is an object. And here's what I want you just to think about as I read it, is that this could have been recorded in multiple ways. It could have been recorded from the perspective of how the people felt and how they responded, and it's not. You get a little bit of a feel for that, but not much. Uh, It could have been written from the perspective of Joshua's fears and his, you know, just, uh, are we up to this? How will God do this? And it's not. It's written this way because God wants to show us certain things. Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. 
Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we don't just need your help during a sermon. We need your help every moment of the day and every moment of our worship. We need your help to say the Bible. We need your help to pray even in our own hearts. We need your help to take the Lord's Supper. We need your help to love each other and be warm toward each other. And we need your help to hear. So like the psalmist said, please dig out ears for us and enable us to hear what you want us to hear. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I, w- I want you to think about this, starting off. Let's say that you were approached by a local Greenville publication, of which there are legions, it seems, and you were approached about writing a column about the Saturday morning market downtown. And they knew you were a regular and you loved it, and so they wanted you to write a column about it. Now, if you submitted a piece that started out saying, one of my favorite aspects of living in Greenville is the Saturday market. The Saturday market is a place where I see other people who love the Saturday market. I love the people who are merchants at the Saturday market. Okay, if you wrote it like that, whoever the editor was would probably say, um, you know, let's look into pronouns because that, that's, you know, you might want to use an it here at some point. It's bad writing, in other words, to just stack up the same term over and over and over. You learn that in school, right? The way this is written like all of the Bible, is intentional. And over and over in this episode, it keeps saying, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. It says it more than it has to. And it's intentional. And then on top of those references, that's sort of the standard way of naming this object, the Ark of the Covenant. Look at some other appearances. Look in verse 3. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant... Of the Lord your God. Look in verse 11. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. 
verse 17. The ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now, what is that telling us? Because it's just stacking up this naming. And when it could just say it, when the Hebrew could have just used a pronoun, it's naming it over and over. It's saying this is the main character of this account. It's not the people who are benefiting from the promises coming true. It's not even Joshua. It's the ark. Now, I've just agonized this week about... I've had four sermons rolling around inside of me, and I'm only going to give one this morning. But uh, what I want to do is to focus on the ark. Now, we're going to talk about Joshua and the people, but, but focus on the ark. So let's look at this. First off, what the ark is, or was, what the ark was, uh, where the ark went... And then what the ark showed, and we could say present tense, shows. So what the ark was, where the ark went, what the ark shows. All right, first off, what, what is the ark? Now, some of you know this. The ark was a chest. The instructions for how to build it are in the books of Moses, especially in Exodus. And uh, it was almost four feet long, and it was a little over two feet deep and wide, and it was made of wood. And it was covered with solid gold. And over it, wood, gold, was a cover called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And on that cover were two cherubim made of gold. And they were facing each other and their wings overshadowed the mercy seat. Uh, The ark had rings on the side that poles went through to carry it. I don't know if you noticed in verse uh, verse 6... It says, Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, and then in verse 8 it says, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. That's what that's talking about, is there were certain priests, not just anyone could do this, who would run these poles through these rings and carry the Ark on their shoulders. There's a bad episode in the Old Testament when that was not heeded and it cost a man his life. This was crafted in the wilderness. This is the way God said to make it. Now, that's, okay, that's sort of the specs, but that's not really what the Ark is. And to really talk about what the Ark of the Covenant is, you sort of have to broach a mystery. Now, here's the mystery, is that on the one hand, this object is a man-made object. It was made at a point in time. Before that time, it didn't exist, and apparently it doesn't exist anymore. So it's finite. It's an object. So it's not God. It had a beginning, right? The mystery is that the God of Israel, Yahweh, He so identifies with this object that it's biblically true to say that what you watch the ark doing, you're watching the Lord do. It's not God. We don't worship the object, but He so identifies with it that what you see the ark doing, you're seeing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do. Now, let me give you a couple examples of this. Um, In the books of Moses, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 10, there's this this little detail that's recorded. And it said, well, Moses wrote this. He said that, you know, Israel took its marching orders from the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. That's where they knew where to go and when to go. So when it moved, Israel decamped and moved and then camped wherever God stopped. And Moses records in Numbers 10 that when that happened and the priest set out with the ark, he would say when it left to the ark, Arise, O Lord, and scatter your enemies. 
he would say that to the box. And then when it stopped, he would say, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. He would say it not only with, but to the ark. He would address the Lord. Now, that's in another book. But I want to show you something in the passage in verse 11. And I've already been teachy, but I'm about to get really teachy. Um, There's another example of this that's amazing in verse 11, but it doesn't show up in English translations. Let me read what I'm talking about. Look in verse 11. Joshua says, Behold, that's the one time he says that word in this text, and we've talked about that word in here before. Behold is not just filler in the Bible. That's not like someone saying, forsooth. You know, it's, it means look. Look at this. Notice this, all right? Behold, now here's the English translation. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you. In Hebrew, there's no of between covenant and the Lord. In other words, if you translated this literally, it says the ark of the covenant, comma, the Lord of all the earth. And it echoes that in later verses in the text. This isn't just a nostalgic object. That, you know, this is not just the Howard's Rock of Israel, with all sympathy extended on that this week. Um, and really, I was tempted to say, this is... I was tempted, when, thinking about what is the ark, to say it was the most important object in Israel. That's not sufficient. It was the most important object on the earth. That thing. Because God chose to identify with that particular thing. Now, uh, I want to make a point in passing. If if I was writing, I would call this an excursus. Uh, This is not the main point of this sermon, but I'm going to pop if I don't make this point in passing. When I was in seminary and I had an Old Testament class... One day, I had a professor, and he was talking about this passage. And he he pointed out what I just told you about verse 11, about how it reads in the Hebrew. And I'd never heard that because I had never studied anything in Hebrew. And I thought, man, that's amazing. And then he said, now look, guys, does God still do this in the New Testament era? Does God still identify with an object so closely that even though you don't worship the object, that the object is named the Lord. And he connected the dots from this chapter to the Lord having the Passover with his disciples, holding a piece of bread and not saying, this represents my body, but saying what? This is my body. And holding up a cup and not saying, this stands for my blood, but saying, this is my blood. So, I mean, kind of all kinds of lights are going off as he's, you know, as he's saying this. But then, this was kind of a chill down the spine moment for me in seminary. I know you're on the edge of your seat. Because uh, he kind of he he raised the ante and said this. Um, does, if you misused the ark in the Old Testament, you either got sick or you died. Does God still do that? 
And then he connected the dots to the Apostle Paul's instructions about the Lord's Supper. In fact, to the verse that is in our bulletin every week. We put, that's printed in the guidelines in the bulletin every week. And it's where Paul says, you've got to rightly discern the body of Christ when you take the Lord's Supper because those who take it, those who use it and don't do that, some of them have become sick and some of them have died. And so I was just kind of blowing circuits in my mind. So I raised my hand and said, then why aren't more people dying from this? And he said, shut up. No, I'm just kidding. He said, <laughs> he said, um, and this is, this is what really kind of put a chill down my spine. He said, I would argue that they are. I mean, what, what he was having the audacity to say is that I would argue that God is still God and what 1 Corinthians 11 says is true. And that maybe something that looks like an illness out of the blue or a death out of the blue has something to do with what that's describing. And, and I say that because we do this every week and we do it with joy. I, if there's a moment in my week where I feel like I could spit in the devil's eye, it's when we take the Lord's Supper together. And I want it to be joyful. I also want us to realize this is a meal where God the Son did not say, this represents my body. This represents my blood. He said it is. And as somebody once said, he didn't say, take and understand. He said, take and eat. God is still God. He can do this with an object. Now, Let's kind of come on back here to the the Ark of the Covenant. Where the Ark went, a couple of things. First off, look in verse 4. Joshua's giving these instructions. Excuse me, uh, these officers giving these instructions. They say, there shall be a distance between you and it, that's the Ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, I, I, when we come to biblical numbers and measurements like this, I feel like we've, we have to put the brakes on for a second just to hear what that means. 2,000 cubits is over half a mile. In other words, if let's say we're the Israelites and we left the parking lot of downtown Perez and we were out here on Mac B Avenue, 2,000 cubits away would be like Publix. And God is saying... I want that much distance between the ark and my people. Now, the first reason it's given is because I want you to see where to go. There's a lot of you, and I want, I want to be way up ahead of you so you know where to go. But there's also this biblical theme of be careful with my presence. I mean, when the people were in the wilderness, do you know how far ahead the ark of the covenant was from the Israelites? A three days journey. It wasn't just a hundred yards ahead of them. And Joshua says to the people, consecrate yourselves because of what God is about to do in our midst. Get yourselves ready. Pray. Put sin away. The Lord's about to be in our midst doing wonderful things. So, okay, where's the Lord going? It's going way ahead and it's showing God's otherness, His bigness, His holiness. But then what happens? Look at, look at the end of the episode, verse 17. 
says, when the souls of the... Oh, excuse me, I got ahead. Uh, verse 17. Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now think about that. Think about what a juxtaposition that is in Israel's experience. Because on the one hand, what they know of the Ark of the Covenant is don't mishandle that thing. Don't misuse that thing. Uh, The reason the tabernacle is the house of the Lord is because that thing is in the tabernacle. Handle it with reverence. It's way up ahead of us. There's that. But then when the people actually cross over the Jordan on a dry riverbed, they're walking past it. I mean, here are these priests standing with the ark on their shoulders, and people are getting as close to it as they've ever been. As they're walking through a place that that they don't understand how they're able to do this like their forefathers did in the Red Sea. But they're walking over. They get as close to it as they've ever been. And they go up into the promised land. And I'm telling you, this comes up all the time when we study the Bible, is God is big. God is near. God is holy, holy, holy. God is with you and He is for you. And our minds want to say, which is it? And the answer is always, yes. That's who God is. This is an insufficient illustration, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Just think about electricity in your house. You know, we get kind of accustomed to the fact that there are power lines over us. It's just like, yeah, you know, there's poles and there's power lines. These are death cables. I mean, death cables. One came down during a storm a few days ago on McDaniel, and there was just a fleet of first responders and fire trucks and power crew, and they had roped off the area because it's just so much lethal power. But, you know, then we're in our house just like plugging in our, our coffee maker. Or I'm recharging my iPhone. Everything's fine. Why is that? It's because there's this thing called a transformer. That on the one hand, this can keep just having lethal, just blow you apart power. And then here's something that's helpful, accessible, that's warming, that's really a blessing. In some ways, the Ark of the Covenant was like a transformer. I'm sure there's problems with the analogy. All the theologians can can line up afterward. but, But just that this is the meeting place of God of wrath, the God who is a consuming fire, and the God who is right there with you. You know, it's not... This object is too precious to get in that water. The ark will be 100 yards from the river. From a distance, he'll part the waters, and then you go ahead. If we can put it this way, since the text calls the ark he, he goes first. That's who God is. So what, what is the ark showing us? I mean, it's already showed us several things, but I, I just want to hone in on a couple. <clears throat> the first is that, well, let's, let's put it this way. It's showing us what His people don't have to know, but it's also showing us what God's people do need to know. Now, what do we not have to know? And I'm going to tell you on the front end, this is frustrating. What we don't have to know 
is how it works. For us to act on faith, for us to act in faith, we don't have to know all the details of how God does it and how it works. This this is such a beautiful detail in this passage. And the writer's been very deliberate to let us see this. Look in verse 13. When the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. Now, that... Just catch the detail. If the, however long the priest in front had their foot over the Jordan River, it kept flowing. And I mean, oh, to have video of the guys in front going. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the ark. I don't know, you know. When they stepped and they hit the water, it starts piling up in a heap at the town of Adam but not till they take the step. We could preach eight sermons off that. I think I just used a royal we. I'm sorry. I I, I would like to preach eight sermons off that. We are displeased with ourselves. Um, But listen, I'd I'd like to take that and I'd like to make an application to those of you who are here who either know that you're not Christians or you're, you're enticed by it, but, but just you haven't pulled the trigger yet. Now, this is not going to be true of everybody, but it may be the case that you're, you're hanging back and there's certain things about it that are compelling, that, that, that there's a good news there like nothing else that you can find offered. But what's, what you're hanging back for is because I want to know the details completely of how this thing works before I step onto it. And here's the thing. We don't do any other aspect of life that way. I mean, virtu- unless you are an, an, like an electrical engineer par excellence, no one has a droid or an iPhone and says, I'm not going to use this product until I totally understand it. I'm not going to apply my feet to the brakes of my car until I totally understand the mechanics of braking. We just kind of say, you know, I just see that this is true and I'm I'm going with that without understanding all the logistics of it. You know what it's like, it reminded me of, is Indiana Jones, but not the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I can't believe I'm quoting Indiana Jones and not Raiders of the Lost Ark. But you remember uh, the last crusade where they're looking for the Holy Grail. And... Indiana Jones has finally come to the place where he knows where the Holy Grail is and he comes to this opening and there's this just gigantic chasm. It looks like a bottomless chasm. And there's a room ahead of him in, in, a, in another cliff wall and that's where the Holy Grail is and there's just this chasm. And the instructions say that God will let you walk over but you have to believe. And this is great. I mean, it's just quintessential Spielberg... He's sweating and everything, talking to himself. And he does the same thing. He puts his foot out and just hovers. And then he steps. And what happens is there's a walkway that perfectly blends in with the opposing cliff wall. You can't see it until you step. That's a good illustration. I mean, my exhortation to you would be this. There's no way to know for sure until you step. 
I mean, you can... It, it's that way with dating someone. It's that way with hiring someone or accepting a position from someone. You can try to do all your due diligence, do all your study, and I commend that to you. If you're trying to dig into the Bible and do your homework about, can I give my life to this? I would say, absolutely do this. But here's the reality. There reaches a point where you have to say, I don't think doing more due diligence is now the issue. The issue is, will I believe him or not? And the demonstration of actually believing is to step. Those priests doing that, that's a spiritual principle that's all through the Bible. For believers, but actually for the person who needs to become a believer. You don't have to know how everything works. There are a couple of things God does want us to know. Uh, I'm going to be briefer on the first one because we've already talked about it a good bit. The first one is... He is with us. He is with us. You know, he says that to Joshua. He keeps reassuring Joshua. But, uh, but what else does he say? Look in verse 10. Joshua says, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that He will, without fail, drive out from before you all these enemies. It's not going to be because you're strong and you're intimidating. It's going to be because He is with you and He keeps His promises. And when you change, He doesn't. And I, again, th- there's a bunch of sermons rolling around inside of me. Uh, that, that is awe-inspiring to think about. One of the prophets who lived in this promised land said that someone's going to come and his name will be God with us. And when that person came and he went public, do you know where he was? When God audibly said from heaven, that's him, he's in the Jordan. And God audibly from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's God not just still being with us, it's God all the more being with us. When the people had given him every reason not to want to be with them, just like we do, he's still with us. Um, but th- there's a last one that, that we need to know, and it's this. Uh, it's God wants us to know who to follow. God wants us to know who to follow. How do you see that? Look in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then there's this verse that we tacked on the end from chapter 4, verse 14. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. I want you to think about this. That's, that's cool to learn that about, you know, okay, God wanted them to know Moses is dead. Is this guy Moses' material to lead you? And after that day, everybody went, yes, that's God's man. We look on him the way we looked on Moses, and that's great. But how does that affect me? That the Lord wants me to know who to follow. Something that that Christians used to... um, A way they used to talk in former days that we don't talk as much 
now is seeing their own Christian life from Israel's history. Because Christians would look at that and say, look, you've got a group of people who are living in slavery under an evil ruler. And when they could not free free themselves, God frees them. He raises up someone to free them. And then they're in a wilderness. And in the wilderness, there is pain and suffering and trials and waiting. But then they cross a river and they enter the promised land. And Christians said, that, that's our lives. I was a slave. I live in the wilderness of this world. Trials, temptations, waiting, hardship. But one day he brings us into the promised land. So then what's the Jordan River? It's death. And, and Christians used to use that metaphor a lot more, that the Jordan River is our death. Um, I've quoted this before. This is a book by Anne Lamott about writing called Bird by Bird. And there's a chapter that, that always gets my attention because it's about perfectionism. And you know, a lot of you tell me that you have perfectionistic tendencies. But listen to this. Perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. It will keep you cramped and insane your whole life. I think perfectionism is based on the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting each stepping stone just right, you won't have to die. And I find that compelling. But you know what? If I am on top of things and I'm organized and I'm getting the right nutrition and I hydrate and I drive at 10 and 2 and I exercise, and I have enriching activities in my life, and I give back to others, and I have the right people around me, that I don't have to be as mortal as I really am. And that is not true. And, you know, when we, when we come together, what we're supposed to be doing is coming back to our sanity. And part of coming back to our sanity is occasionally to get together, weekly to get together, and with joy and sobriety say, we are going to die. But someone went ahead of us. Somebody went first. Someone who was simultaneously the great God of Israel, Yahweh himself, and physical, tactile, material, with us. Some of you are afraid of death right now. Some of you aren't afraid of death yet. But we're all getting closer to it, aren't we? And think about this. This is quoted on the front of your bulletin. One of the most beloved hymns of English-speaking people is, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And think about this verse. When I tread the verge of Jordan... Bid my anxious fear subside. Death of deaths and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. And just this past week, I visited with a couple who were interested in membership at the church and I was hearing more about their story. And the wife just gave the most wonderful explanation about how one of the things that impacted her most spiritually 
was watching her grandmother, who loved Jesus, move toward death. Because as she got closer to it, her anxious fears did not increase. Her anxious fears subsided. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about sermon application, we want something about, like, you know, time management or giving or parenting or what kind of employee am I? Here's the sermon application. We're moving toward death. And He has gone ahead of us. He will bring us into the land that He has promised. He has shown that He has the power to do that. He's made the way for us. He went first, and He's with us. He's with you whether you're a 20-something or an 80-something, if you're in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we praise You, the one who was enthroned over the cherubim, the one for whom the Ark of the Covenant was His footstool as You were enthroned in heaven. We praise You as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our greater Joshua. Lord Jesus, thank You that though Your servant Joshua was faithful, he could not give the rest that we really crave. He could not give the rest that we really want but you have. And we thank you. We praise you. We love you because you first loved us. And we pray in your name. Amen.